0: Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the podcast from Dream Queen's Medical Centre at Nottingham. In this episode we'll be discussing epistaxis. As ever, all guidelines are correct for Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. Any and all information is correct at the time of recording. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, welcome back to Take Orally. and this episode we'll be discussing epistaxis. I'm delighted that uh, Tom Stubington's come back to us. Hello, Tom. Hello, thanks for having me back. Good morning. Uh, you've previously talked to us about sore throats, so delighted that you've been able to come back to us. Yeah, well, here comes the next big hitter from nosebleeds, the most commonest <laughs> thing we we'll probably see. Yeah, so um, I think, yeah, epistaxis is a very common ENT complaint. I think we see oodles of patients coming through the doors with, with some variety of nosebleed, both resolved and unresolved. And I think it's important that we have a some key messages and a a sort of an approach to them.
1: Absolutely, and I think the thing about epistaxis is it really is a um, a, a condition that can be one of two things. It can be mild and simple and self-resolving, or actually it can be really serious and severe. And I think the thing that people often forget is, yes, nosebleeds are by and large the light bleeding, not too much of a problem things you got as a child, but they can be life-threatening and if they're severe they should be treated as any other sort of major hemorrhage, major blood loss situation should be. Mm. Um, the nice thing about nosebleeds is that get the basics right and these, these patients do really really well and the things are eminently fixable and you can have a patient who is really quite significantly bleeding mm. and with the right treatment, the right intervention, they go home with no bleeding whatsoever and they have a really good experience. Um, So, I thought what we'd do today is chat over a bit of the basics, a bit about how to approach a, a patient with a nosebleed, and then we'll go into a couple of scenarios that really kind of bring out those simple versus really complex situations. Sure. So, so, so thinking basics then, and this is the thing
0: that uh, this is one of the things that you sometimes see being done wrongly in the community, people can going, tip their head back. Absolutely. And you see it on TV as well, and uh, you get into a bit of a, uh, no, wrong. So shall we say, well, you know, you've got somebody in front of you at home having a nosebleed,
1: what, what yes. do we need to do? So I always tell them my patients with nosebleeds this anyway, even if they are seasoned old hands and they've had thousands before, At least if I know I've told them how to do it right I know that they know what they're doing so the two key messages are head forwards and pinch the soft fleshy bit at the bottom of the nose Um, and I can't stress the head forward enough especially in elderly patients the last thing you want is them swallowing blood swallowing clots firstly because it's really unpleasant but secondly it can be really dangerous and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute Um, In terms of pinching the fleshy part, the vast majority of nosebleeds come from an area called Little's area that's right at the very front of the septum. You pinch there, you're applying direct pressure to the problem. If you pinch up on the top of of the bony part of their nose further up, you're doing nothing. You can't pinch the bony part, the whole point is it's designed to resist pressure and compression. So you are literally just pressing on some bone. Mm. So lean forwards pinching at the bottom of the nose and Keep pressure there going, it may take a while. Yeah, I think the most important thing is that maint- maintaining pressure. So what I tend to tell my patients is, I want you to apply 15, 20 minutes of constant pressure. You mustn't take your fingers off to look every 30 seconds. It isn't going to stop. Uh, and then what I tend to say is at 20 minutes or so, if you're still bleeding, tell someone. Let mm. them know that you're bleeding, because you might need to go and do something about it. Mm. Pop the pressure back on for another 20 minutes. If it's stopped, fantastic, take things really easy for the rest of the day, mm. avoid heavy lifting, strenuous activity, um, and just, you know, carry on. If it's still going, that's the point when you need to see someone. If you're bleeding for sort of towards the realm of an hour, mm. it needs something doing. Shall we just touch on the,
0: the sort of A to E approach then with regards to our patients? So obviously like you've already mentioned swallowing blood, that there's a potential airway concern there, isn't there? Yeah.
1: So if we switch gear now to sort of your patients just turned up to A and E or turned up to wherever it is that they're being admitted to, your first priority, get them sat up, lean them forwards over a vomit bowl, get them to pinch their nose or apply a nasal clip. Mm-hmm. And you can be doing all your other things whilst you're doing whilst that's in place, because that's controlling your bleeding. So if we start with A with, with airway. You've got your two main threats here. Number one is swallowed clots and um, swallowed blood blocking off the airway and essentially causing a respiratory arrest and yes, it does happen. It's not common, but especially in the very elderly patients who've had a big bleed, you've got to be careful. The second thing is the really severe end of the spectrum, which is major blood loss, dropping level of consciousness and occlusion of airway, but that's much less common and you'll have had plenty of signals before that starts to happen. Breathing-wise, short of swallowed blood, coughing, I suppose further down the line, aspiration of blood, there isn't too much there that's going to be affected, but clearly you still need to be looking for oxygen saturations and getting a general idea of how much they're struggling. Circulation, of course, is your big point. You know, This patient's bleeding, it's a circulation problem. Um, blood pressure and heart rate in exactly the same way as any other bleeding situation tell you your severity and how much blood this patient's kind of losing. The one thing to remember with elderly patients is that a lot of them are hypertensive.
0: Mm.
1: So a patient that's sitting there with a reasonably all right blood pressure, sitting around 110 systolic, if they're really hypertensive and they're normally sitting at 160, that to them is, is a significant drop. Mm. Um, and these are the patients actually that can look really quite unwell as they come in. Um, Disability-wise, most of your patients with nosebleeds are awake, they're chatting to you, you know, they can interact perfectly normally. The ones that have got a dropped GCS or who are a bit drowsy are the ones you want to worry about. They're the ones that you've probably lost quite a lot of blood. And I think at the end of this assessment, you're dividing your patients into two categories. You've got the reasonably well, walked into A&E, bit of bleeding, either under control or stopped or should be controllable. Or you've got the really sick, hemodynamically unstable, pouring out the nose, can't get things under control. Um, Regardless of which one these fall into, your first thing is um, Investigations-wise, a large ball cannula and get some group and save clotting and full blood count off. But that just really gets you out of jail. Mm. You've got that in the bank. If you need it later down the line, but the last thing you want to do as a patient starting to uh, lose consciousness is be fiddling around putting in a cannula.
0: Better to have it and not need it Absolutely. than need it and not have it. Excellent. Um, and so, if we're able to get a history from our patient, which the majority of them we're going to get our history before we speak to you. Um, what what bits of the focus history do you want to know yeah, So um, and when we're giving you our history over the phone, what are those key bits that you that you
1: want the doctor to have taken? Mm. So I've already mentioned my advice regarding how long those bleeds are lasting, and we really want to know when this bleed started and how long it was. Because mm. when we're getting past the half hour sort of hour-type territory, we know that this is a bit more of a serious bleed. We also want to know what the patient's done, have they, where have they applied pressure and has it worked. If it's really slowed down with pressure, that's a really good indication that it's probably quite near the front and we're going to be able to do something about it. Next thing is a little bit of background, so we really want to know this patient's previous experiences with nosebleeds. Have they had cautery? Um, have they had previous packs? And, you know, If the patient's had a previous admission with ENT, previous clinic appointments with ENT, we're building up that picture of these are slightly more complicated nosebleeds, they might need a bit more attention, should we say. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to go on to, uh, to risk factors, and these are the big ones that we want to know about. If you can reel off tick, 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 either yes or no to these, you're going to have a very happy ENT surgeon on the end <laughs> of the phone. Um, so blood pressure is the big... Confusion, shall we say. Clearly a patient that's really anxious, is bleeding, is really unhappy, is going to raise their blood pressure naturally. But by the same token, patients with very high blood pressure are at an increased risk of bleeding. And the jury's out. It goes backwards and forwards as to whether it's the high blood pressure is as a result of the anxiety or is a true causative factor. Regardless, Occasionally, you will get patients presenting with malignant hypertension whose actual first presentation is nosebleeds. Clearly, in that instance, once you've stopped the nosebleeds, the priority is going to be their blood pressure. Mm. Um, so, your next thing, and this is the, the real bane of our lives, this is the <laughs> anticoagulants. Yeah. Warfarin, rivaroxaban, everyone remembers about those, but the antiplatelets are really important as well. Mm. And I've lost count of the times where I've uh, I've run up and uh, I've been rung up and I've said. Are they on any uh, anticoagulants, any blood thinners? And they've gone, oh no, they're not on anything, just a bit of uh, bit of clopidogrel. It's really important we know about the clopidogrel and the aspirin, because clopidogrel blood bleeds are really hard to get under control. Okay. A lot of our measures rely on boosting and augmenting the body's natural clotting processes. Mm. And so if the platelets aren't sticking together, it's really hard for our techniques mm. to work sometimes. And it's quite spectacular until you see these patients coming in and uh,
0: it's like something out of Halloween or it's like, I mean, I've seen patients where it's almost like um, like a red fruit and barley coming out of their nose. Yeah. There's just no consistency to it whatsoever. And you think, oh, that, and that, these are the patients and, and so you want to know, yeah. Absolutely.
1: Um, your next hit, trauma. Partly because it gives us a good picture of what's going on with the patient, but also because after the initial stages, traumatic nosebleeds are managed slightly differently. And so if you call us and tell us it's traumatic, we're coming down in a different mind frame, we're coming down with different equipment, because they need a different approach. And I'll touch on that in a bit, but clearly it's something that EMT would be managing more than expecting yourselves to uh, independently manage that. Um, the other thing is operations. Has this patient's nose been furtled around with by one of us? And that's important for two reasons. Firstly, the previous surgery may be the cause of the bleeding. If you get a patient that comes in and says they've had an inferior turbinectomy or a septoplasty or a septal abscess drainage, those are the patients you want to be really switched on for and really think, OK, this could get serious. Because those, those are the operations which one of their complications is quite significant bleeding. Not often, but if it happens, it really happens. So in those situations you really want your group and say, your access, you want really good pressure applied, and actually you want to be calling us because we want to be coming down and sorting that out. Um, the other thing is, have we done operations to try and stop bleeding? So if you see in the notes something called an SPA ligation, that's your sphenopalatine artery. What we've done is we've gone in with a telescope and clipped off that artery to try and stop it. Now, that's our kind of nuclear solution. <laughs> if we've done that and they're still bleeding, then this is a, clearly a fairly good-going situation. Um, and the only options after that tend to be um, forms of embolisation, done in conjunction with uh, interventional radiologists. Wow. The other thing is, if they've had something called a FES, so that's functional endoscopic sinus surgery, That's usually done for abnormal um, mucosa within the nose, big polyps, things like that. They can be very vascular, and bleeding after that can be difficult to control because the anatomy is different. And so it doesn't quite look the way we would normally expect. The last little thing to think about, which is slightly less um, significant than the others but is useful to know, are little risk factors like do they have allergies, have they had a recent cold, do they pick their nose? Mm. All of these are traumatic to the nasal mucosa and may have been the stimulating factor. Mm. Um, so um, is actually
0: true then I mean, when your mum says if you keep picking your nose you'll give yourself a nosebleed? Yeah, it's damaging it to the septum, it
1: can cause a perforation, it can make mm-hmm. you bleed. OK. Um, so
0: shall we then think about our management? So we've, we've got access, we've taken off our bloods, we've spoken to you, we've got a focus history. Um, our patients um, holding their nose, they bent forward. Um, what, other, uh, what other key things are there to
1: look out for when we're examining our patients? Absolutely. So hopefully at this point things are starting to slow down and stop, and that's the real benefit of getting the clip on there and the head down straight away. Um, so have a quick look at the nose itself. Is it really bent out of shape? Is it really swollen with loads of bruising under the eyes and over the top of the nose? You know, these are the trauma patients and those are the ones where often they either stop with their own cord or we can manipulate the nose back and that, things, that then settles things down. But it's really useful to know that when you call us and say, oh actually it really looks like it's uh, traumatic, we've got more information to deal with. Have a look in the mouth, and that's the thing that people always forget. It's like, oh, but they're bleeding from their nose. The thing about that is it helps us to determine how significant the bleeding is and where it might be coming from. So the things you're looking for is at the posterior wall behind your tonsils, behind your uvula, is there blood? Okay. And is that old blood? Is that just little streaks of brown? Or is that fresh blood dripping down? Now, if you've got a patient that's leaning forward, pinching their nose, not much coming out from the front, and they've still got fresh blood streaming down the back of their um, mouth, it's probably either a posterior bleed, so it's not little's area, it's further back, or it's such a significant anterior bleed that it's filled up the front, and is now dripping down the back. Either way, these are the ones that tend to be a little bit trickier. And a really helpful tip, if you can't tell, get them to swirl a load of water around in their mouth, spit it out, a couple of rinses. If there's still blood dripping down or coming down at that point, they're probably still bleeding. Um, And then we're moving on to actually looking in the nose itself. Here's the main event. So if you're lucky enough to have a a set of thudicum speculum um, downstairs in your A&E, fantastic. Congratulations. They're super useful. Um, But by and large, just pushing up the tip of the nose so that you've got a nice, open nasal cavity. Getting a good light source and having a look in is fantastic. A bit of suction to clean things out is wonderful. I'm not expecting a detailed description of the anatomy. I just want you to say, I think it's coming from the front, from the septum, or it looks like it's running from further back. That's all we're after, because that gives us some really useful information. Now, at this point, management-wise, It really does depend on what your background is, what your training is, and what department you're working in. Some departments are really well trained in cautery and even nasal packing. Some departments, not so much. If you're experienced with um, cautery and you're confident that it's coming from the front and you want to give it a try, that's absolutely fantastic. We would have no qualms with that. What we would say is if you're really struggling to control things and you've got a good going bleed, try and hold off on packing and let us have a look. Because if we can come down and use some alternative techniques, we have a number of other things that probably aren't available to you, we might be able to get that nosebleed under control, use a much more comfortable alternative to packing, and probably save the patient to admission. So it's just really helpful to have that discussion before just ramming a pack in. (laughs) That said, clearly if you've got a really unstable patient who is hosing and we're not gonna be able to get down for 15, 20 minutes and they are becoming unstable, Your package you'll get out of jail and if you need to do it we won't we absolutely won't question that. Free.
0: Yeah. Okay, no. uh, so shall we uh, just go through some hypothetical scenarios then just to discuss some of these principles in practice then. Um, so I think you wanted to first talk about a case of um, a hypothetical
1: case of mild anterior epistaxis. Yeah absolutely so so these are these cases are drawn from sort of um, the common ones that keep coming through the door, and I could name you 20 people that would fit this perfectly that I've seen in the last month. Um, so we'll start off, we've got a 65-year-old gentleman, and he's come in. He's had about 30 minutes or so of bleeding, um, and he's struggling to stop, and we think he's probably put some pressure on there, but we're not sure if it's exactly right. His, uh, his daughter's with him, and she, she's not sure exactly what pressure she, he was applying. So he's sat in the A&E waiting room now, and he's pinching the nose. One of the nurses has taught him how to do it properly. Um, and it seems to be working really well. There's a little trickle, but by and large, things are under control. This chap's not on any anticoagulants. He does have some high blood pressure, but it's controlled on, uh, on some normal tablets, and it's now within normal ranges on his obs. He's not had any trauma, not had a cough or a cold. He's been pretty fit and well otherwise. Good. So these are your your milder ones. They're Mm. the less urgent ones. Um, Once we've got some bloods and some obs and we're happy that there's no evidence of sort of severe bleeding, um, get some ice on the back of the neck, keep the consistent pressure. And these are the ones that if you're confident in cautery, by all means crack on. Have a look. There's probably an anterior bleeding point there. Give it a zap. These patients should be absolutely fine. a little note on post cautery care and, and what to do. Once you've cauterised the nose, that stuff its silver nitrate, it forms a nitric acid solution. You want to get that out of there because there's a lot of water sitting around in the nose that can transmit that, for want of a better word, burning effect, to other parts of the mucosa. Give it a little clean with, um, with a damp gauze or something like that. and this, Tell the patient, to use Vaseline to keep that area moist and help it to heal. And use that a couple of times a day, gently rubbed onto the septum, and tell them to avoid any kind of heavy lifting, exertion, running, things like that, for at least the next week. Okay. And the other thing you want to say is keep away from any kind of steam-type environment. So they don't want to have hot showers where the bathroom's full of steam. They don't want to be uh, drinking and eating really hot meals. Let things cool. Lay off the sauna. Absolutely. <laughs> and the reason for that is you've got a huge blood supply to your nose that's coming off the internal and external carotid. And if there's steam and warmth in those blood vessels dilate, you're just increasing your risk. Okay. Um, so if we move on now to something uh, a little bit more um, severe, a little bit more significant. so. This one, we'll think of sort of 72-year-old lady. She's on some rivaroxaban for a for a metallic mitral valve, and she's been bleeding for something along the lines of the last three hours. So what's what's running through your head at this point, Jamie? Help. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a that's a good reaction to have. These are the difficult ones. So she's had a number of nosebleeds in the last couple of weeks, and they're taking time to stop. Yeah. She's got them under control, but she's had the paramedics out once or twice. Things clearly haven't been going her way. She's in the waiting room and she's still really bleeding. Despite trying to keep some pressure, she's spitting out clots, she's trickling past. Things are clearly not under control. And she's starting to look a bit pale and quite tired. Um, You do some OBS on her, she's got a blood pressure of 100 systolic. Heart rate's all right at the moment. So we're not in horrendous territory yet, but clearly that's a blood pressure a bit lower than I'd like. And Mm -hmm. we're starting to get to that stage where things aren't going so well. She's not had any recent trauma, she's not normally hypertensive, no previous operations, but she's had intermittent nosebleeds ever since she started the River Oxban, and it's probably getting worse.
0: Okay.
1: Um, now at this point, hopefully she's well enough that you can have a little look at her. She's still conscious, quick look in there, she's coughing up really large clots, you can't really see the oropharynx very well because of the blood, um, and you look in the nose, but as soon as she takes the pressure off things really intensify. So this lady's at risk for a number of reasons. Firstly, she's elderly, she's frail, she hasn't got much reserve, um, and so any blood loss she's going to deal with less well than your 21-year-old who's just jogged in off the street. Secondly, she's on a on an anticoagulant for a really good indication. Mm. She needs that anticoagulation. You, clearly, you couldn't fully reverse it. Exactly, but bleeding's going to be much harder to, to control. Thirdly that you can
0: reverse her with rock span, I should say, but she well, was on very water true. and you couldn't fully reverse her anyway. You see, uh, as an ENT surgeon, that's a
1: little bit outside of my, <laughs> my specialist knowledge. You slipped that one past me. Um, so, thirdly, she's probably lost quite a lot of blood. She's had a couple of previous bleeds, she's been going on for a while now, and mm. she's starting to look quite pale. So, she's probably one of these patients where she was gradually trending downwards and now has dropped quite markedly. Um, and finally, you've got your double jeopardy um, from the clots. She's less able to avoid choking on the clots. Um, she's probably got a less competent cough, less competent swallow. Yeah. So you've got the risk from the blood that's being lost in the clots and the risk to the airway from the actual clot itself. So your management here, this is a lady who you don't want sitting in minors. She needs a bed and a bay in majors or possibly even recess, depending on the extent of bleeding. And clearly I will leave that to the A&E's judgement because that's your guy's remit, not mine. Um, Make sure the pressure's in the right place, make sure she's sat forward and encourage her, really encourage her to spit out that blood. Often people come in and they think they're supposed to be swallowing it. You yeah. Just get them spitting it out. It's unpleasant, but it's better. It's also gastrically
0: irritant, so Absolutely. You, I've seen that before where people have been swallowing it and you deal with the nosebleed and then the vomit comes yes. and they're vomiting up a stomach full of blood and that's not nice either. And of course
1: the retching and the vomiting quite often then opens the yeah. nosebleed up again and yeah. then you're struggling from yeah. two points. Spit it out, it's fine. Absolutely. <laughs> um, the next thing is get on these bloods quite urgently. You want to know what that haemoglobin is. If it's dropped markedly from her previous, or if she's sitting at sort of 70-80 realm, I would suggest cross-matching at least two units yeah. and probably transfusing. But again, I would leave that to your individual well, there's department. There's the value there of a nice early blood gas as well
0: that will we yes. tell us while we're waiting for the formal Absolutely. bloods. Yeah.
1: Um, the next thing is replacing um, blood with fluid to start off with, giving her a bit of a bolus. Clearly, she's got a, a metallic heart valve, she's probably got some cardiac pathology. Use your judgement, I'm sure you're every bit as good, if not better, at judging how to resuscitate these patients. And finally, give us a bell. We're, we're interested in this sort of patient, we need to get this under control. Um, so that's that's talked through our, our main kind of… The spectrum. Spectrum.
0: Yeah.
1: I just wanted to go a little bit more now onto a few slightly more specialist, nitty-gritty type things. Mm. Um, so. What experience have you got with uh, with tranexamic acid, Jeremy? So we use it in trauma, yep. and uh, we
0: use it uh, quite a bit in uh, PV bleeding, so mm-hmm. we can give patients uh, tranexamic acid. Um, I have to admit, for um, for nosebleeds, I've only given it rarely. I haven't given it that often, but uh, I'm willing to be um, mm. educated well, out
1: you've, <laughs> of. You've, you've just described the two main situations where it has been used, and it's really well evidenced. And I will freely admit that traneclamic acid in those bleeds isn't as well evidenced. There isn't the same wealth of evidence for it. However, anecdotally, it does help. And if you're at the territory where you're really, really struggling, then it's certainly not going to hurt. Um, In terms of when to use it and what sort of things you can use it with. Now, clearly in this lady with the um, metallic mitral heart valve, we're not really wanting to make her more coagulable. We've already got a number of risks involved, so I probably wouldn't use it in her situation. But interestingly, there are a number of studies actually, um, the most notable one, uh, an American trial called ATACAS, um, which was over multiple different centers looking at the risk of thrombosis uh, in MI patients who were having interventions when tranexamic acid was used, and they found it to be safe and indeed beneficial. So there are situations where very much cardio um, Type indications, it has been safely used. Mm. Similarly, um, there's been a couple of systematic reviews that have looked at it and have found that there's not a consistent increase in rate in VTE rates. So some studies have found there is a weak increase, some found that there wasn't really any at all. The Cochrane review from 2018 unfortunately hasn't come up with a definitive answer, which we'd all hope for. Um, this was looking at menorrhagia, it wasn't looking at nosebleeds, but it, it came out with They couldn't find a convincing increased risk of um, venous thromboembolism, but their study sizes and their evidence base was just too poor to make a true judgment. Um, We tend to use tranexamic acid in severe bleeds that we can't get under control in any other way. So if if I come down and see a patient and I look at them and I I know you are going to need a pack, and I put the packs in and they're still going, I will often give them some tranexamic acid as well. And we may carry that on for a couple of doses whilst the packs are in, in, in place. Um, the other thing to talk about briefly is anticoagulants and nosebleeds. I've already said that they make our life a heck of a lot more <laughs> difficult. Um, and by and large, we will deal with the uh, nitty gritty of dealing with anticoagulants. Yeah. If they're getting to the point where we're thinking about reversing anticoagulants, et cetera, we'll have put a pack in. And by that point, they've got to come in under us anyway. Um, So, Warfarin, clearly we want to know the INR. Um, In terms of categorising things, if epistaxis is uncontrolled or we're struggling to get under control, we would class that as a significant or major bleeding, depending on what your hospital trust phrasing is. Um, And those are the ones where we're going to be looking to reverse, we're going to be looking to get that INR down, and again, either with vitamin K or even with Octoplex, depending on the INR and depending on your trust's personal um, preferences. If, however, we've come down and we've managed to put a pack in it and things have stopped, we tend to consider that to be controlled. So, actually, in that instance, we would be less inclined to start reversing the Warfarin because we've got things under control. Now, Mm. clearly, if if they've got an INR of 10, then we're probably going to look to reverse it. But if they're sort of threes and fours and we've got a pack controlling things, we're less likely to reverse things because, remember, most of these are on, on the morphine for a good reason, mm. we're going to have to restart it at some point, and if they're yeah. chock full of vitamin K, it's going to be a, it's going to be a tall ask. Um, so that's, the, that's, that's why we sort of, before we decide where we're going to stratify these patients, we really need to have a look at them, because it, we can't classify it as controlled or uncontrolled until we've tried to yeah. control it, really.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, if the bleeding's life-threatening, um, and packing is uncertain and it's still going, um, then clearly we're going to need to do something about it. Now, this bit's a little bit less relevant um, on the shop floor at A&E, but just so you've got an awareness of what we do with warfarin once we take them over. So, if the patient doesn't require any packing, then all of their anticoagulants are continued. Their warfarin, their aspirin, the clopidoggle, they crack on. Now they've probably missed a dose whilst they've been coming into hospital or in hospital, but we just carry on. If they've needed a pack, um, and it's a minor indication, by which I mean atrial fibrillation, a single DVT or a previous DVT a very long time ago, then we tend to stop the Warfarin okay. once they've got the packs in and aim to restart it once the packs are out. Yeah. If they've got a major indication, multiple DVTs, multiple P's or singular P, heart valves, um, we tend to carry things on. Even with the pack in Even case. with the pack in situ. Yeah. Now, in those patients, if we've got things under control with the pack and they're still on the Warfarin, marvellous. If they're not, then we phone a friend. Cardiology, um, haematology, are fed up to the back teeth of us calling about packed patients. But we admit it's complicated, and we God, need that. It's not their just ice that gives them the room. <laughs> <laughs> no, in these situations, we, we need to control the bleeding, but clearly we don't want them to get plot yeah. in their mitral valve. Yeah. So that was all I really wanted to think about. And adults. Was there anything else, Jamie, you were sort of uh, looking to discuss? And what
0: about the antiplatelets? Do you, what, do you keep those going? Sorry, yes. So
1: aspirin we would usually omit. Clopidogrel we try our best to continue. Okay. Now if they're packed, or if they're packed and still bleeding, we'll end up stopping it. But by and large, especially if they're on clopidogrel for stents and things like that, we try to carry on. Okay. It makes our life very difficult, but we we get in trouble with the cardiologists if we <laughs> cause problems with their stents. And you mentioned ice pack to the back of the neck. Yes. Earlier. Was that? What's that do? Um, so it's again not brilliantly evidence, but the argument is that on the back of the neck or in the throat, it causes vasoconstriction constriction oh, okay. and reduces blood flow. Interesting. How much of that is true, I don't know, but it makes the patient feel like you're doing something whilst you're kind of getting everything yeah. else in place. I like that thought. Yeah. So okay. it. it it doesn't hurt, it mm. may help.
0: Okay. And uh, for tranexamic acid, my re- the, the research team here are going to be angry with me if I don't mention that we're, we're inv- uh, involved in the HALTIT trial looking at tranexamic acid in GI bleeds, so I should say that's another time I encounter tranexamic acid. They would uh, be angry with me if I didn't mention that. <laughs> okay, so that's adults. Yes. Uh, shall we look at the other end of the spectrum? Yeah, Little people. Absolutely. Um, so what about paediatric nosebleeds? I anecdotally, remember from school, lots of nosebleeds, sports related, picking nose related going on at at school. Um, What do we need to do for our, you know, child, young person coming in with
1: a nosebleed? Yeah, so you've you've hit the nose on the head. Nosebleeds in childhood are common and the priority for us and for A&E and anyone else is, is this a problem, a serious pathology, or is this normal childhood nosebleeds. Mm. And I'm not going to go into too much detail because we tend to have a much lower threshold for seeing children sure. because they're children and they've got much less circulating volume. But essentially you've got you've got two peak instances in nosebleeds anyway. You've got children and young adults and you've got the elderly. And from a children point of view it is extremely common and most of them grow out of them by the sort of teenage years. Um, the ones that we're looking for as sort of non-worrying, non-concerning, are the mild nosebleeds that last 10 or 15 minutes that re- respond spontaneously to first aid, a bit of pressure and they settle, Smashing. and those are the vast majority of nosebleeds. Now, if this is the first time you're seeing a child in A&E and they've had that and it's stopped um, and the bleeding's clearly halted, I tend to keep an eye on them for sort of half an hour or so to make sure it doesn't start up again but we're probably not going to get too worried. Now, if they're getting repeated episodes, mm. that's when we start to want to see them. And especially if it's repeated episodes with no um, triggering factor. So triggers in children, nose picking. We've already mentioned it. Mm. Most children do pick their nose. Half of them won't admit it, but that's the commonest cause for a nosebleed. The next thing is, especially young children, they stick things up their nose. Now. These guys tend to present a little bit differently. They've often got blood-stained discharge, or a smelly kind of greenish discharge, or they've got a blocked nose, or they just come right out and say, oh, I stuck a pee up my nose. And in those instances, usually, take the problem out of there, and they don't get the bleeds anymore. Yeah. Um, and clearly, if you look up the nose and you can see a foreign body, give us a bell, we'll hook it out. Um, trauma is more common in the Older children, your teenagers, your young adults—not common under sort of five years or so, because the nose is immature and it's fairly cartilaginous, and it's it, you don't tend to get the same degrees of injuries, but it can still happen. Um, the other thing is children with allergies—you get a lot of children with sort of hay fever, cat, dust mite allergies, etc.—and that constant irritation, that coughing, that sneezing, can open up those blood vessels. The other thing is. Children that aren't using their um, allergy sprays properly Mm. can cause um, shrinking down of the nasal mucosa from the steroid effects and again that becomes weak and brittle and bleeds. And your last one seems to be the culprit for everything paediatric, upper respiratory tract infections. Good old nerty. Exactly. Um, It causes an increased blood supply, it causes congestion, nasal kind of um, congestion and they're coughing, they're sneezing, they're picking, they're pushing and it bleeds. So, those are your common garden type stuff, and if you're seeing those, then if you can get a good, reliable reason for it, then that's brilliant. If you're unsure, if there's been a lot of them, if they're lasting more than sort of 15 minutes or so, send them to clinic or give your local ENT guys a bell and say, What would you like us to do with that? Because mm-hmm. it might be that although they're not concerning those bleeds, there's nothing else going on, they just need a bit of cautery to get them through the next few years mm-hmm. until they grow out of it. Rare causes-wise, um, the big one to think about is something called juvenile nasopharyngeal angiofibroma. Mm. Now, the classic picture for those is your young adult males, we're talking early teens through to twenties, who are getting nosebleeds that they just can't get under control. They may also get some nasal congestion, but these are the children that they just keep coming back and back and back. And you aren't going to see this, uh, when you look in the nose because it's too far back, right at the back towards the uh, nasopharynx. Um, and the only way to deal with those is to send it to us, we'll put a scope in and then we have to sort of do a lot of investigations before we start poking this very vascular lesion. Mm. Um, cancers do happen. Um, they're not at all common in children mm. and they're far more common in adults. Mm. And a little thing to mention that I forgot about in the adults there, is if you see a patient with nasal blockage, weight loss, who's been exposed to a lot of aerosols in the past or heavy metals or sawdust. So these are your machinists, mm. your kind of carpenters, things like that. Um, and they've got loss of smell, blockage, weight loss, maybe some night sweats, and they're getting lots of nosebleeds. There may be a mass in there. Mm-hmm. Have a really careful look, see if you can see it. But if you can't, they're heading the way for us to put a scope in. But back to children the other really important question to ask children is do, or, or their parents if they're too young, do they bleed easily when they cut? Is it hard to stop? Yeah. Do they bruise a lot even from minor injuries? Yeah. Is there any history in the family of blood clots, um, blood clotting disorders or easy bleeding? Because those are the ones that make you think, hang on a minute, there might be something deeper there. Mm. And those are the ones that we will then get blood tests on and do further investigations. And, I suppose the, um, the the last little one to mention is, uh, is granulomatosis with polyangiitis, um, the uh, the new PC term for vagueness. Um, it's it can occur in some young adults and it can occur sort of further on into adulthood, and these are. Often nosebleeds aren't the first presentation, but if it is, there'll be patients who, again, are getting lots of nasal discharge, itching, lots of bleeding, and you look in the nose and it all looks really scarred and shrunk down. And in the really severe cases, there's a very tiny um, nasal aperture, and that's about it. You can't see any of your normal anatomy. And these are the sorts of things which we're going to be seeing and Mm. we'll probably diagnose that in clinic. But it's having that index of suspicion in children where they're going on for a while You can't get them under control, and they just keep going back and back. Mm. Um, So I guess, as my sort of tagline for children, your times to worry are long bleeds that are certainly, uh, that are lasting longer than 15 minutes, but certainly that are ones that are getting towards an hour or so, that aren't improving with pressure. Children less than two, children less than two getting nosebleeds is unusual. Mm. Um, And I suppose in the back of your mind there, is there some sort of non-accidental injury going yeah, on there? that's
0: what I was thinking, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, because there shouldn't be a way that a child under two is really getting that kind of trauma, with the possible exception of them jamming things up their nose or picking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, the teenage boys with, who keep coming back and back and back with bleeding that you just can't get under control, have they got a, a juvenile uh, angiofibroma? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's going to be ENT, that diagnosis that, so send them on to us. Brilliant. Fantastic. Anything else, Tom, you want to talk about? I think that uh, that covers I all the- I feel the
0: well-rounded
1: there on epistaxis. Yeah. Thank you so much. No, no, you're very welcome. I guess the last message to leave with you is nosebleeds are, by and large, simple, non-life-threatening, non-concerning. And I don't want you to take away from this that the really severe cases that I've talked about is mm. common. Don't Don't panic. Don't worry too much about nosebleeds. Just have in the back of your mind that little red flag that says, "Yes, it's a nosebleed, but it could be serious." Okay,
0: and uh, do you know of any um, online resources that are good for epistaxis? Does the, um, the college have anything good that people
1: can check out? So there's a there's a website called um, mm. ENTSHO, um, Yeah, I think it's dot co dot uk. Um, that's a very very good website aimed at the kind of SHO and AE type level um, and it's very, very practical, very, very hands-on and talks you through both the reasoning and the research behind things where possible. Okay. So that's a good, in a pinch, have it on your phone, I believe there's an app, or have it up on your computer and just a, uh, oh heck, I don't know what to do with this, I can't remember, okay, that'll get you the first few pointers so that you can at least do, give a useful handover to your ENT colleagues. So we'll put a link into the blog for this. Yeah, so that's, right, that's so check that out. helpful. Um, there are learning packages on um, ENT UK, which is the, uh, the UK Royal College. Um, I'm not sure whether or not they're they're open access or whether you have to be a member, I have okay. to say. Um, but ENT SHO is free, easily accessible, and Brilliant. is written by ENT registrars for the purpose of helping out people who don't know much ENT. Marvellous.
0: Thank you so much, Tom. Great to see you. Thank you. That was the Take Orally Epistaxis podcast. You can find the blog entry and take vision for this podcast at www.takeorally.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Take Orally on both iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, You can find Take Orally on uh, both Facebook uh, and Twitter. For more information about research and education opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine, and major trauma, don't forget to check out NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.